This morning's reading is from John 6, 16 to 24, a passage where Jesus walks on water, demonstrating his power and authority over nature. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now, it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I want you to think back to um, your early childhood. As far as you can go, the earliest memory you have, and you will realise, you'll remember, I think, probably what it feels like to be completely and utterly dependent on somebody else. Think about this. You are only alive today because somebody else totally looked after you at one point when you were born. Uh, If you do not feed a baby, the baby will die. Uh, If you do not put clothes on the baby, the baby will get cold and probably die of the coldness as well. Then as we get older, we we learn to uh, become more and more independent. And soon children will say, after a certain point, they'll say, no, I want to do it. Let me do it myself. You know, and that's their kind of goal to gradually get more and more independent. And then as we get older and older, we move out of home and eventually take control of our own lives. But, but as I re- was reminded last, a few, few days ago when I visited my 98-year-old grandmother in her nursing home, you, you suddenly become dependent again as you get older. I mean, she cannot move from her chair to another chair or to her bed without somebody else lifting her up. She um, can only get the meals brought for her now. and um, So we become completely dependent again as we get older. And actually, I want you to think about this too, that throughout our lives, it's really important that although we try and be independent, that actually we have to learn to be dependent on each other. In fact, dependence is a fundamental part of the Christian life. God has designed us to be dependent people. You might be the kind of person who doesn't like to be a burden on others, but this is your pride getting in the way. Uh, John Stott makes the um, point in his book, The Radical Disciple, which is a really good little book. He wrote right towards the end of his life. I think it was in his mid-90s when he wrote it. He he said that a refusal to be dependent on others is not a mark of maturity, but of immaturity. 
It's often the case that if we struggle to be dependent on other people, then we can also struggle to be dependent on God as well. Depending on people, depending on God, it requires humility. And it's often when we are hit with a crisis in our life that we are humbled by this experience. Perhaps it's illness or a relationship breakdown. We lose our job. All of these kind of experiences humble us and then we become dependent on God and on other people all of a sudden. And some of us in our congregation right now, right this second, are going through personal crises, that sort of sudden jolt to the system. And some of you are doing it in private, I know, and some of you are sharing that with others. And you will know what that is like to suddenly have everything in your life stop and for you to have to fully rely on God because you don't know how else you're going to go forward. Well, if this is you, don't be ashamed because I think it's a really good thing that God uses these kind of experiences to bring us closer to him because he actually wants to be close to us. He's using your struggles for good. And as we look at this story of the miracles, plural, there are two miracles in the story we just had of Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. I want us to reflect on what it is to depend on Jesus. So let's have a look at this, what this passage says to us. Immediately after Jesus performed the miracle of feeding the 15 to 20,000, as Anthea pointed out, it says 5,000 men, but that doesn't, they didn't count the women and the children there. Uh, uh, we know from three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, that the next thing that happened was that the disciples went off and, and sailed across the Sea of Galilee. And Matthew and Mark, the tell us that actually Jesus told them to go. He instructed them to sail from, uh, it was the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee to the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And if you want to know kind of what we're talking about, go into Google Maps and type Sea of Galilee and it comes up. It's really cool. And you can actually see how enormous. So it's, it's, it's a lake, but one of those lakes that are so enormous that they used to call it a sea. Um, uh, the, the, the New Testament says that it was 25 to 30 stadia in length, or it gets translated to three to four miles or five to six kilometres. Um, now, the John version of the story is the shortest of the three versions of this story, but nevertheless, it has a lot of interesting details, and I will bring in occasionally some of the Mark and Matthew details. This is one of the most famous of Jesus' miracles, but... What does it mean? How do we apply it to our lives? Well, first of all, I want to point out two bits of imagery that are quite significant. Firstly, John tells us that it was evening. And in the Gospel of John, darkness represents an image of spiritual ignorance sometimes or confusion sometimes. Nicodemus uh, came to see Jesus at night because he was scared to admit that he was one of his followers. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was still dark, showing her lack of understanding of what was about to happen. It says in John chapter 20, Peter denied Jesus at night time. And John, of course, tells us that Jesus is the light of the world who does battle with the dark. And those who follow Jesus, John says, are people who love the light. 
So when John says that evening came and that it was dark, we should at least hold before us this broader theme and its deeper meaning. Ooh, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder what sort of bigger spiritual truth might be about to be told to us. And the second image that I want to just point out is that the disciples were on the lake. And all through the Bible, water is seen as a symbol of danger, evil, and chaos. Think of Jonah at sea. Um, The sea is kind of not only a physically dramatic part of the story, but also symbolic of Jonah's sin. And the only way to calm the sea is for Jonah to repent. Or the sea monster in Psalm 74. There are sea monsters in the Bible. Is that in your book? Is that in your book? No, that's the second book. Tom's got a book about the cool stuff in the Bible. Um, Sea monsters in Psalm 74, a symbol of evil. In the book of Revelation, the crystal sea, it's an opposite image. The crystal sea is the sea perfectly still, and it's 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 described as being like a crystal because all the chaos and the evil is gone. In John chapter 6, verse 18, it tells us there was a strong wind that night causing it to be rough on the water. So we should take notice. Oh, what is going on here? The chaos of the water. And it wasn't unusual for the Sea of Galilee to be like this. It's 600 feet below sea level and often had big um, rough winds from the tablelands. And it's one of these remarkable things of the Bible that um, it's, uh, the Bible has a kind of literature that, that is true on multiple levels. It's historically true, but then it's also true, can be true at a, at a sort of a psychological or even a spiritual level. Yes, the water actually was rough, and it might be that we should see the stormy waters as a reflection of chaos, of the chaos of creation as well. The brokenness of the world, a world that is crying out like a woman in childbirth for it to be healed. That's the image of the, the Bible uses. So there they were. Um, out in the water. Now, they would have normally sailed across in a boat, a fishing boat like that, but Matthew Mark tells us that wind was a headwind, so it's pushing them in the opposite direction. So they had to row three or four miles or five or six kilometres at night against a headwind. This is a fair way. It's like um, as if they had to take the boat from here to Thornbury or from here to Richmond or across to Kew. It's a long way. Now, I often um, go on the rowing machine as part of my gym routine. And after one kilometre, you are pretty tired. You can do two kilometres, but to do five kilometres against a headwind... Now, there would have been a few of them rowing, but I, I can guarantee you they would have been pretty wasted. They were exhausted, and they could do with some help. At least the wind could have changed direction or they could have had a wave push them to shore, but they didn't get any of that. Then they see Jesus approaching, says John. He's approaching the boat on the water and they were frightened. Why were they frightened? Well, for a start, they've got a, they're seeing a guy walking on the water and you will freak out. If you see that, you will freak out. You can go on YouTube and see magicians trying to do it as a magic trick. And, uh, yeah, even the people knowing that it's a trick are freaked out. But then this is no magic trick on the Sea of Galilee. Also, once they realise it's Jesus walking, they're they're seeing this as a a miracle of teleportation. He's gone five kilometres. 
you know, he, he left them behind. They left him and he's suddenly there. Matthew and Mark include that they thought that they saw a ghost. And there were beliefs in their culture of ghosts at sea, ghosts of the dead, or they were called night spirits. And the, 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 those who had died at sea were, um, the belief was that the ghosts were the worst kind of evil ghosts you could ever have. So maybe they thought that that's what they saw at first, says Matthew and Mark. But, but then they realise it's Jesus. And so what this is, is no scary ghost story, but it's what, um, you know, technically you would call a theophany. And a theophany is where God manifests himself physically to humankind so they can see this is really God. And Jesus does that a few times in the New Testament, but this is one of them where they clearly see him doing something that only a supernatural being can do, walking on the waters when the waters are rough. And usually when, when human beings experience a theophany, they freak out. So think of Moses at the burning bush. He sort of shields himself. Um, when Isaiah is in the presence of God, God, he cries out in shame because of his unworthiness. Saul, on the road to Damascus, is struck blind. So it's understandable why the disciples react this way. Jesus is revealing himself as the mighty son of God who has power over the physical elements. And the awesomeness of this occasion blows them away. And this is where we now return to our theme of depending on Jesus. Because what we see is, while Jesus is performing this sort of amazing miracle, really the point of what he's wanting to do is he wants to be with them. Jesus wants to be close to his disciples and help them. He's approaching the boat, it says in verse 19. And Jesus calms their fear and says, It is I. And it's a self-expression. It's a strange self-expression. Most of us would never say that. It is I. But it's actually something we see repeated through the Bible. It makes us think of God, the I am. The God who calls himself I am. You can't help but think of the Exodus story. Jesus is using the same words that God uses on Mount Sinai when speaking to Moses. And when Jesus says, do not fear, again, he's repeating what God says to Moses when he stands in fear before the burning bush. And the point is, Jesus is revealing who he really is here. He is the Son of God. And this is his awesome display of power. And these references, this language that he's using, the, readers, the Jewish readers of the Bible, they're thinking of all these stories and yet by saying, do not fear, the disciples realize they can welcome him into the boat. And they were willing to take him in, it says in verse 21. For us to learn dependence on Jesus, we need to be willing to accept his offer to get into the boat with us. We need to say to Jesus, I need you. I can't do life without you. I can't get across the Sea of Galilee with a storm and the headwind. I can't get across without you. I want your presence in my life. And, and, and we need to surrender to him. I said there were two miracles, and the second miracle is sort of quickly passed over, but it's there in the passage. Apart from walking on water, in verse 21b, John tells us that immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. And it's only John that mentions this, that immediately the boat gets there. It's this kind of speedy wrap-up of the miracle. Bang. 
Wow. And the other miracle that has a similar kind of speed to it is when, in Gospel of John, when Jesus, who's now resurrected from the dead, appears suddenly in the upper room to the disciples. Perhaps John is pointing us forward to that time of the readers who will, who, will, who will go back and read it again or the people who hear the story read out again and again. This is the one who will cross the sea and immediately be there with us again. In both cases, Jesus is seen to be divine. So what's the point of this miracle? It's an interesting one because Jesus doesn't perform this in front of a crowd. It's just a private miracle just for the disciples. And yet it is recorded for us so that we should know who Jesus really is. And the main point is for us to know that Jesus is really divine. He's not just a human being. He's also the Son of God. Because it is God who walks on water. Listen to Psalm 77, verse 16. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. And then verse 19, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. It is God who makes a path through the waters. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's leading them through the chaos of the stormy sea to their destination. Because even though it is night, they have Jesus, the light of the world, with them. Listen to Psalm 107, verse 28 to 30. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Moses parted the waters, but Jesus walked on the waters. The storm was pushing their boat around, but having Jesus with them meant they were able to get to the shore. Jesus is the Son of God. They can depend on him. And this is why John wrote this gospel, isn't it? So because Jesus is God, he is worthy of our adoration and worship. He is the King of the universe. He is the Lord of Lords. It is appropriate that they were awestruck. They were in the presence of God On the other hand, they shouldn't be afraid. He wants to be with them because he's Emmanuel, God with us. When Jesus is with them, they will be safe. When Jesus is with them, they will arrive at where they have to go. And as we saw last week, when Jesus is with them, they will not go hungry. And so how do we apply this to our lives? Well, because Jesus is mighty and powerful and approachable, He's someone we can utterly depend on. We can depend on him because he is God. We can trust him because he wants to be with us. He cares about us. He wants to get into the boat and help us. Being dependent on God means facing the reality that you are not in control of your life. And you need humility. And this is something we can cultivate. We don't have to wait for a crisis. We don't have to wait till we're old and uh, invalid. So here's a few simple steps we can take in our Christian walk towards his life of humility and dependence on Jesus. First of all, we can thank God every day. Thank him for the big things and the small things. Thankfulness is a soil in which pride doesn't grow. 
Um, thankful people are not self-reliant all the time. They realise that the blessings that they have are gifts from God. Secondly, confessing your sins before God is another way to realise how much you need him. Meditate on your sins and allow yourself to be criticised by God. Regular confession where you hold up a mirror and bear yourself in vulnerability before God will remind you every day that you are not perfect and that you need God's forgiveness and strength to live in a way that's pleasing to him. Thirdly, you can be prepared for humiliations. So this will come your way. It will. If it hasn't already, it will eventually. You will be humiliated, and that's part of life, face reality, and know that it's a good thing that God's going to use it. There will come a point where you get sick in a way that you do not like. You will experience failure. You will experience shame from your own sin. You will experience relationship breakdown in one form or another, or rejection. You may experience unemployment. These are all an opportunity to draw closer to God. Be prepared for these times in your life. Be willing to receive Jesus into your boat. Hopefully he's already there when the time comes. Fourthly, and this is a bit of an unusual, I've never had this as an application before in a sermon, allow yourself to cry. Jesus himself cried. He cried, he cried over Jerusalem, at Jerusalem's sin. He cried at the, at the death of his friend, Lazarus. It is good to cry and let it out because it's a form of saying, I, I can't do it on my own. I need Jesus. I need other people as well. And it's at these times that I find prayer comforting after crying. I feel God's presence close to me. And the flip side of that, and this is the last bit of the application, is to have a sense of humour about yourself. Don't take yourself too seriously because humility and dependency comes from realising your own weakness. But humility isn't being down on yourself. It's not constant self-pity. It's accepting the way things are and having a smile on your face. And I'm sure that the disciples would have looked back on this event and laughed about it. Remember the time when we just rode for like hours and then Jesus just walked across, you know, and they would have thought it was funny, but also profound. To finish, I want to leave you with a bit of an unexpected coda. Um, If you look at the cover of the booklet, you see a bit of a ghastly painting there. And this is a pain. I was just thinking, this is kind of a thought. A thought. Um, my brain sometimes goes on weird tangents, but I think it works. This, this, is, this is good. What you see is a painting depicting an image from Greek mythology of the river Styx, S-T-Y-X. The Styx River uh, in Greek mythology connects the earth with the underworld of the death, of the, of the dead. And there, were, uh, there we see on the cover the book, of, Sh- of Sharon, C-H-A-R-O-N, carrying the dead down the river, never to return. And it's depicted in the Divine Co- Comedy, um, in Dante's Divine Comedy, and it's also d- depicted in Milton's Paradise Lost. Dante said the Styx River is where the wrathful and sullen are punished by being drowned in the muddy waters for eternity, with the wrathful fighting each other, pretty grim sort of stuff. 
And so the reason why in ancient times, you might have seen this in um, plays or movies or books or something, in ancient times they put a coin on the tongue of a, a dead body is so they could pay the fare on the ferry to cross the river. Um, well, the miracle of the cross is that Jesus crossed over the river of death. He effectively walked on the Styx River and he got to the other side and he was able to return to earth in his resurrection. We can truly depend on him because he has defeated even death. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the ruler over the Styx River. He walked on the Sea of Galilee and he has walked on the river of death. He died and rose so that we will not be carried away by the turbulent waters, but we will be forever safe with him. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this amazing story and thank you for Jesus who walked on water. And we thank you that we can be dependent on him. We pray for all of us here this morning with the different things going on in our lives. Pray especially for those who are feeling a real crisis now and struggling. And pray that you will be with them in their boat and they will know that you are there now, leading them through um, these difficulties of life. Thank you that nothing can separate us from you. Amen.